How did a casual drinking club of nine ambitious young cooks turn into a legit chef's collaborative tackling the betterment of Colorado Springs' food scene 20 years ago? We talked to three of them left standing about what they did and didn't accomplish next. This is State of Plate, where we dish on Colorado Springs' culinary culture. Thanks to State of Plate's underwriters, the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective, downtown Colorado Springs, and the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. All right, this is episode two of State of Plate. My name is Matthew Schnipper. I am the Colorado Springs Independence Food and Drink Editor, and I'm also a food critic there. Today, my guests are Brent Beavers, Jay Gust, and James Africano. Brent is the owner of Immerse Cuisine and BFD, which stands for Breakfast for Dinner. It's not what you think it stands for. It's a big fucking deal, right? That's what other people say. Yes, it was a big fucking deal. Oh, so it does stand for that. Okay, I stand corrected. Yeah, it's and actually... the BFG stands for Best Fucking Gravy. Oh, okay. But some people are a little uptight, so we don't talk about that. Right, which is why I went with breakfast for dinner. Yeah. The sanitized version for this. I appreciate that. Okay. Family friendly. James, you're at the warehouse. And Jay, you're the owner of Homa, Tapatria, and Pizzeria Rustica. I want to go around the room real quick and have you each tell me a little more about where you're coming from. Let's start with you, Brent. I kind of grew up here. I uh, was a dishwasher at the Mason Jar. And on the last episode, you had Shane. I was a dishwasher for his father at the Painted Lady. When I was 16, he was the first one to, like, teach me, like, what are really simple, important things. He's like, hey, salads go on cold plates, which you would think makes sense. But um, actually, that's something that people need to be taught. After that, I went to the Mason Jar, washed dishes. Got a job working at La Petite Maison with uh, Jeff Mervis, and that's where I began my real education with food, like understanding sauces and understanding flavors. I was plucked from there to open a restaurant called Sencha. I ran that for about seven years, and uh, then I went off and did some corporate stuff, kind of came back, and uh, a few years later, we're at uh, the Carter Payne with uh, two restaurants in there. So it's kind of rocking and rolling. Nice. It's a BFD. It is the a other BFD. version of BFD. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right, James, you are up next, sir. I grew up actually in uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and moved here in high school, Colorado Springs, to my first job at the Embassy Suites Hotel on the north side of town, washing dishes. Same kind of come up as just about everybody we're going to talk to today, except for um, Snooty Pants next door here. Gust, but actually he's got a pretty good story too, minus the school. Um, <laughs> did uh, some time there washing dishes, moved to Hawaii and um, kind of, um, I guess, saw culinary arts become something that could be a career as opposed to what I did for a little while. There's a different reverence for the, uh, for the profession there, um, walking through some of the service hallways and having people look at you and your chef whites and like, Oh, you're a cook. Are you working one of the kitchens? Changed my mindset pretty completely from this is what I'm doing right now to what this is what I think I want to do. Cause I loved it. I just could never see a career come out of it. Uh, moved back to Colorado Springs, popped around a little bit, worked at, um, Phantom Canyon for a while. I know that's a part of at least your history, right, right. Brent? Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, got some pretty good chops there on doing big-time volume. Um, moved around a little bit, landed at the warehouse when I was 23 years old, and was the chef there for about a decade, left, and went to New Mexico, worked for uh, Ted Turner for a little while at a really giant ranch, one of the best experiences of my life, really enjoyed it. Also, um, you know, really helped to... F- finish forming a style that I might've been um, starting to 
to put together at the warehouse and then came back and actually bought the warehouse seven and a half years ago now. I've survived COVID uh, as a business um, and as a person maybe more than twice. And now we're here and rocking and rolling. Jay Gust, you're up. Hey, okay, so moved out here in 95 at 19 years old and started dishwashing at the Ritz and ended up running it for about 13 years. Uh, they sent me off to culinary school, which ended up uh, doing my internship at a vineyard, fall in love with the oenology and viniculture. And then when I came back, started uh, still working with concept restaurants, helping with McKenzie's and, of course, taking over the Ritz and... Then uh, jumped into the corporate world for a hot second, task force chef, EC for Hilton Group and uh, Doubletree, and then decided to stop doing corporate work and buy a bunch of restaurants, Pizzeria Rustica, Tapatria, then we opened up our Anoteca Rustica, and then uh, I had a short stint where I thought I could pull off Scandinavian food, <laughs> and then uh, now I'm kind of... I, well, just as of recent, the last project was a really cool boutique hotel project called Kinship Landing, and they didn't know F&B, and that was my forte. So we helped build a really cool, progressive uh, F&B program for Kinship Landing called Home at Kinship Landing. Nice. Yeah, awesome spot, man. I love it. For any listener who may not have been to one of your restaurants because they are new to town or they're just not cool people, but we're going to try to make them cool people. Good luck. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why don't you run down, like, you know, what do you serve? What do you do? We're a multi-concept space. We're in the old Carpane Chapel. It's a 125-year-old church. It was uh, started with uh, Local Relic, which is a small batch brewery, uh, 200, 230 beers a year, like one barrel. So if you like it, you got to come back and drink it because otherwise it'll be gone. Uh, we never repeat recipes there. I was the second concept to come into the partnership they needed food. Jeff, my partner, got me pretty drunk one night. And then I've been there doing food for five years now. <laughs> so we've got a cocktail bar concept in there called Aracana, and we've got a wine bar in there as well. So now we function as one entity with multiple concepts. So BFD is breakfast for dinner. It is brunch food weekends. Yep. Immerse is, uh, started as kind of snack food and tacos. We've kind of moved away from that. We want to be good, intentional food, but drop all the pretense just uh, tasty stuff. Uh, we make a lot of our own curries. We are doing a bunch of ferments. We're making our own vinegars. We like to uh, play around with our food. So the menu can kind of get a little all over the place, but it's all pretty solid stuff. Sweet. James, tell us about the warehouse menu right now. The warehouse was actually originally born with Palmer Lake Brewing Company. So it started to kind of be in the genre of Phantom Canyon. Um, which was kind of a comfortable place to go at the time. Which is like early 90s, right? We're talking like 93, yeah, 94. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Okay. The early 90s. Well, part of Phantom them. opened in 93 with Bristol, right? They were the first two breweries in town, right. I think. Yeah. Palmer Lake opened in Palmer Lake and then was moved down here in the late 90s. The warehouse opened. And it never really worked in that for whatever reason. It was too far south. It wasn't in the middle of everything just yet. Um, and the volume couldn't do it. And so over time... And with a little bit of prodding from me of the original owner, we got it to be a little bit of a uh, nicer and a higher end restaurant. Certainly not fine dining. Um, that doesn't really exist much in Colorado Springs even today. Um, but high end dining, you know, at a different level, a different price point, um, a little more care put into the food, a little bit more. Um, the, the ingredients changed where we were sourcing ingredients changed. And that has all come and gone again and come back and gone. And Warehouse has been through some things over the years. So higher end dining, it's not the least expensive restaurant in town by any means, but you have a quality, quality experience while you're there. And like Brent said, and I think this is important without the pretense, um, we try to make it pretty friendly. 
and you shouldn't feel uh, uncomfortable in um, a tank top and shorts, a shirt and a dress. It doesn't matter. We just, you know, we're happy to have you. And we have a lot of very, um, very comfortable American fare, roasted chicken, a steak and potatoes with creamed spinach and leeks, classic steakhouse stuff, a burger. But then we also have um, a, a lot of wild game incorporated that was something that we were doing a lot in the late 90s and early 2000s in the original kind of restaurant revolution of Colorado Springs, that Colorado cuisine. You don't hear it said much anymore, but um, I think we've, we've managed to hold on to it pretty well. A lot of those places have gone away in town, and it's kind of sad. But you will find elk, boar, quail, um, lamb, venison, antelope on our menu at any given time to kind of push your palate a little bit, um, change the dining experience. We have bison tongue pastrami right now. If you want oh, to come yeah. check it out, it's delicious. I like, it. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I've actually tried that dish. That's really good. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. a great dish. The warehouse is our go-to for our anniversary. Not only do we have our, our wedding reception there, but we go there every year. James does an amazing job coursing us out. Even our, like, two-year-old, three-year-old kid now, like, he gets his own, like, little cute courses. And he, well, he's an eater. Luckily, he's an eater. So I love feeding Joel. He just smacks it down. <laughs> and he doesn't leave a huge mess. No. Always a plus. Always yeah. a plus. Not like, I'm going to just grab all the crackers, smash them up now, throw them over the floor, and now we got that out of the way. No. Now, <laughs> now we can have dinner. He's he not eats that the kid. meat and then chews on the bone. He's awesome. I love yeah, that kid. super cool. <laughs> so, Jay, um, tell us, uh, I know you've got three to cover, so you want to hit quick styles? Okay. Pizzeria Rustica, VPN Pizzeria. So, Naples What's style. VPN? Help me. I know, but oh somebody goodness. else okay. might not. So it's a classic Naples-style pizza. So we fly in our yeast from Isia. We use the Caputo. We do everything as classic as possible. I would say it's, I would say it's like the upscale pizzeria of, of Colorado Springs. High-end wines, all the goodies. Uh, Tapatria, gluten-free, Spanish tapas, wine bar, fun, cool, fast-paced, funny-burning nitro car all summer long. And then uh, home at Kinship Landing would be... One of our clients probably put it best. He says, the food here gives me optimism. So healthy bowls, great sandwiches, locally baked bread, all the concepts. We try to source regional first and then local second. So whether it's Italian, Spanish, and or health conscious, starts there and works its way to how do we backfill with everything local as it's available. Cool. I want to do one more transparency note, but last episode I mentioned our guest was Shane Lyons. He and I worked together at Sencha. That today is the Sencha, the same Sencha we're talking about with Brent Beavers in the room. So Brent was my chef at Sencha. Brent, what do you want to say about our Sencha years? Uh, thanks for putting up with my shenanigans. I was kind of a dick back then. Um, <laughs> maybe still, but definitely then. Um, <laughs> We had a great time. You were an excellent waiter. You were always passionate about food. You took place in our literary dinners, which were kind of this crazy idea that we had. And I've seen you with less clothes on than most of my waiters. It was just the Odyssey, guys. It's not what you think it is. Right. <laughs> right. Tips were good. Tips were really tips good that were night. Tips were really <laughs> good that night. Best tips ever. I need to reprise my role as Odysseus sometime. Yeah, we should do that. Back then, though, Sincha was one of those places in town, one of the few, like, the warehouse of its day. I mean, I, I, you guys would have cigarettes after work on Sincha's patio. I'd be, you know, finishing up, like, side work and stuff and come those out and find cigarettes. you guys. Those were not cigarettes, actually. You're correct. I don't know. They were for me. They were small. They were, they were, they were, <coughs> they were small cigarettes. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Uh, at that time, but it was better than, and uh, the specials that were coming off your line on a given Friday and Saturday were 
phenomenal, I think. And we were all really proud to work there. And you, Jamal Davis, we had just like a really tight, talented crew back there. It was a small kitchen that wasn't a big crew. Yeah, small space. Yeah. um, But small spaces create great stuff. You have to be tight. You have to pay attention to your details. Last episode, we opened it really up big about analyzing the state of Colorado Springs food scene now. We asked some core questions, which we're going to revisit in every episode about where are we now? Where do we want to go? What are we doing right and wrong? And how do we advance our scene? At one point, Shane mentioned there was this group of fine dining chefs around 20 years ago. Well, that's you guys. You were in this group. It's called Club Nine. It's a chef's collaborative. How did it come together and what was its mission? Back in the day, this would have been like probably 2000, 2001. Yeah, Uh, in that area. Right around there. There was a chef in town. His name was Victor Matthews, and he was uh, uh, very verbose in the media and uh, decided to call some of us as chefs in to work together. And one of the premises is always that uh, as good chefs, if you work together, you actually lift people up. The competition is not a bad thing. Competition can be a very healthy thing as it's done in a supportive environment. So he started this club, and I was one of the original members, James. The other original members were Chris Adrian, Chris Bowie. Chip Johnson. Me and you. Marcus. And I don't know Marcus's last name. Where was Marcus working at the time? Uh, Walters, Walters over on 8th Street. John Broning. Yeah. And he was at Primitivo. He was at Primitivo. Okay. Yeah, and there were originally nine, and I think we just got there. I don't know. Eric Viet. Eric Viet was an add-on along with Jay Gust a little bit later. It took – it was probably a year, and we had some fallout. Some people came and went. They were starting to age out, so like, hey, we need to get so young guys. <laughs> yeah. And That's uh, right. You know, so we brought you in, young buck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a whole – 18 months younger than the rest of us. But um, anyway, yeah, so that's how it kind of came about. And then for a long time, it was honestly really just a drinking club. We got together once a quarter at somebody's restaurant and drank until 3 in the morning. We didn't say that out loud. We don't We don't drink after 2 o'clock <laughs> in the morning at the restaurants. Did you cover I've like – never drank after 2 o'clock in any it's restaurant. Not, it's had. not a restaurant if it's in the walk-in. That's true. Uh-huh. Boom. <laughs> it becomes a private space after you lock the doors. But it basically became a drinking club for the better part of – Three or four years. But did you talk shop during the drinking? Quite a bit. We didn't have anything else to talk about. We would talk about food, and it wasn't just drinks. We'd always try and make something for the chefs that were coming in because it would be hosted at everybody's shop. So, you know, we'd get together and eat and talk about stuff and cool products or what, you know, we were doing. And then we started to get a little more serious a couple years in, think about, like, can we buy in bulk and do things like this to kind of help the bottom lines of the restaurants? Did you guys do that? Did it work? Nope. Didn't work. <laughs> uh, we thought we talked about it sometimes in restaurants. Um, I think at that time, I was the only restaurant owner in the group. I, I fell into a situation where I was a restaurant owner pretty young. I was a partner originally, and then at this time, I was like a partner. But there gets to be a lot of uh, opinions and uh, personalities with restaurant owners. So sometimes that was a really when, polite way to say something. I that watched was, you filter that. That was pretty polite. I wonder what he's thinking Age. right now, guys. <laughs> yes, <laughs> if you would ask me that same question 10 years ago, you would have got a completely different answer. Some of those personalities could get in the way a little bit because people, you know, rather than just say, okay, we're going to do this and this is how it is, you know, you have to filter opinions. And one person wanted to store all the stuff and wanted the group to pay them. And, you know, so there was just things that didn't, didn't I work. don't remember that guy. The fuck you don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Jay, I want to hear what happened in the walk-in after 2 a.m. Then 
we seriously just talked about cheese. It was the craziest thing. Like I remember going to Sancha. Oh man, and we're, and we're that was meet. a crazy night. I remember that. That we was were crazy. All in the walking, looking at Prince shelf of cheese. Yeah, and it's like we get out, we get out of the walking, and the sun's up. I'm going like, oh, oh shit. no, yeah, like. That was a crazy night. That yeah. was a crazy night. Yeah. That might have not been the night and that Fozzie Osborne was invented. No, no, no. That was not the night of the Fozzie Osborne. What um, is the Fozzie Osborne? I think I remember that was one of our cocktails. On the it menu. was one of our cocktails. Uh, yeah. okay. oh, it was really just a giant green hangover in a glass, but yeah. it went down easy <laughs> after a night in a 130-degree kitchen. Oh, it was so good. Ooh. But it would get you so drunk. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember what was in it. So to recap, this is a drinking club. <laughs> it was, right. It was that, a drinking that eventually club. became serious. As so we you got, did get serious. We did eventually get a little yeah. something going. Well, on. I think the pinnacle point of like the serious structure came when, when who was it? Our uh, commissioner cut out all the parks and recs bathrooms and all that. We're kind of yep. like, screw right. this. Like, what what the hell is this about? We can't be progressing with such a beautiful city and, and everything and all of a sudden have this, you know, ding dong being like, you know, tripping over dollars to make a pennies. Yeah. Right. So this is a response culturally to what was happening elsewhere in the city. Yeah, that that sounds is. like a response not even to food and drink and bigger markets. This wasn't like looking at whatever, Chicago, Denver, LA, and say, oh, we got to do this thing with our scene. Yeah. You're like, no, our, our town around our us town is declining. Yeah. And the other thing that motivated us, we did so many events in those days, all of the different things. There was the chef's gala and the whatever the chef showcase and the, this and the, that, and the other yep. thing. And it was six times, eight times a year. We were at the, the Broadmoor or the antlers or whatever, and we're giving food away and we never had any plates or forks or spoons or anything to serve all these people. And then we look like assholes, restaurateurs, chefs in there. And we're like, I'm Where's sorry, my fucking plate? Right, I can't give you any food because I don't have a plate. So we wanted to put on our own event. Mm -hmm. For chefs, by chefs, mm -hmm. and also to help support something that we all believed in at the time. And um, we still do believe in it, and it's uh, Rockledge Ranch. And so Brent actually kind of spearheaded the thing with the original general manager of the ranch. Brent and I ended up over there talking about it for, I think, almost a year and a half before we actually pulled the first one off. Yeah, it was quite a while. I mean, big things like that take time to plan. Yeah. And, uh, Are we talking about fiddles, 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 and, fiddles vino? and vino? Okay. Mm -hmm. Which was in response on – what Jay was talking about, Rockledge was the one that's always on the chopping block first. It's one of the prettiest parks in the mm -hmm. in the city. It's because it would make beautiful million-dollar homes. Yeah, it would. It's a working history ranch or working history museum. So it takes a lot to fund. Its funding is more than Thorndale Park or one of these little parks. Yeah. You know, it has staff. It has groundskeepers. It has right. livestock. Yeah. So it was always really important for us to keep that, like – when we first met with Gene, who was the GM in the beginning, and he was like, I think I know you. And I'm like, oh, I yeah, grew up Yeah, you probably there. threw me out of the park. Yeah. And he was like, I, you're, that, you're that kid that smokes weed by the lake. Get out of here. I didn't smoke weed that young, but he was like, I think I chased you off of there for throwing rocks at ducks when I was a little boy. And it was the thing we did in the neighborhood. We'd go down to Rockledge Ranch, and I was like, yeah, you did. But that's one of the reasons it's important to me because you had a place in your neighborhood that you could go and be outside. There were frogs, ducks, all these things, you know, lots of deer, apples, all yeah. this stuff. Yeah. And those things are important. We lose those in a lot of cities. Yeah. I mean, we've already lost Venetucci Farm for that yep. matter. And like the, the historical things. Venetucci, that still just pisses me off. Yeah. Like yeah. They, got, they got, they were done so wrong. Yeah, so so wrong. For someone who doesn't know, basically the the, the watershed, the aquifer got tainted by chemicals. It's not tenable to grow and eat food off that farm now. So you can give away pumpkins if you want for decorating, or you can grow flowers or whatever. But but don't cook that pumpkin. Don't, don't, eat, don't the eat the pumpkin. pumpkin. Don't eat the seeds. Yeah. Yeah. We'll continue the conversation in a minute, but first. 
State of Plate is made possible through the support of the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective, illuminating City Auditorium with diverse and accessible arts, education, and business events, and working on establishing Colorado's first media arts registered apprenticeship program in partnership with Pikes Peak Workforce Center and the Alliance for Media Arts and Culture. Learn more about this unique program at communityculturalcollective.org. Now, back to the conversation. Club Nine sounds like it takes on a historical preservation mission more than just elevating food and drink. That's maybe surprising to some of us. Like, wow, okay, what? You guys are doing historical preservation now. What? But is that a tie to, like, again, local food and local agriculture and local farms? Is that sort of like the overlap between the food and the farm? Or I think so. In a lot of ways, there is that overlap. And obviously, in Colorado, the Western Slope is one of our premier, you know, ag-producing areas. But the Front Range had a lot of stuff. Well, you know, the late 1890s, early 1900s, there was a lot of cherries, apples, things like that growing here. Um, and that area by Garden of the Gods is so beautiful, I think. I mean, it was our intent to raise money to help them survive. And that's what kind of galvanized us into drinking less and doing something mm-hmm. a lot less. Um, but I think that also it's not just the farming and kind of historical aspect of – production on the front range for like consumable items for your body but it's community like Mm -hmm. this affects our communities without that place colorado springs is way fucking lamer like brent said it's a place in the neighborhood you know that's a place you'd go you'd walk around with your girlfriend in high school or you know you and the guys go wander around and you can get kind of on some rocks and not be in garden of the gods a little bit Mm -hmm. on the on the west side of the uh, of the park and maybe not get run off by the rangers quite so quick when you're scrambling and doing things when you're knucklehead and you're young. So it was a it was a special place. Really, what our mission was was to throw a party for us by us and bring a bunch of people. And in the meantime, we could connect to something that really made sense that helped to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And then over the years, you know, we we planted some trees over there. There was before a big freeze. There was a big blackberry patch that we'd planted. There is asparagus over there that we've planted. Hmm. And I haven't had a phone call recently, but over the years, I've had the, hey, come harvest asparagus. We've got squash in the garden. Do you oh, need cool. berries? Is fiddles and fiddles still a thing? or is it Circle gone? pattern. Yeah, we're kind of on uh, another year of hiatus, unfortunately. We just couldn't quite put it together. And this goes way deep into some things we'll probably talk about Was in a little bit. Was this pre-pandemic? Did it, did it retire? No, or so we went up through. And then the year of uh, 2020... We just decided it was a better idea not to lay out all the money for the bands, for the tents, for everything else, and not know if we could put 1,500 people in a space together. Right. Last year, we weren't quite there. There was a lot of staffing issues and whatnot. And this year, what actually came to it is I think I had restaurants ready to go, and the rental companies that we used to do the tents, tables, chairs, and all the other things couldn't get staff. Labor alone killed this year's thing. Right. Right wow. back to labor again. Right back to labor. Unbelievable. Yeah. Is there still a Club Nine? Is Club it still Nine a, exists. Yeah. It a exists. a legal entity. Who's now in Club Nine then? Uh, there's, I think, five of us now that kind of make it up. And then Have we, you thought about changing your club's name to Club Five? No. Okay. Hopefully. It's a legal entity. And hopefully it'll be after a some, big pain in the ass, I don't know if you've ever filed for a non-profit. Do you think you guys could make four friends quickly? Yes. I don't even know if I have any friends. We're all here. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I thought okay. you were here for Schnipper. No, no, we're here for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Club Nine exists, even though it's five now. You are in a circle pattern on uh, on fiddles and fiddles. We might see it come back next year. We'll see. I'm hoping what for next year. I will tell you there will be one more. Yeah, it might only be one more. Okay, but there'll be one more. 
when we mentioned this in episode one, we were talking about the, the rapid development downtown, these bigger buildings coming up, cranes in the skyline. As it pertains to your mission or your vision, the Club Nine ethos, how's that affecting our food scene? We're kind of on like another chain explosion again, which I mean, it happens. It's cyclical here. I remember hearing the stories of the 80s when we were used as a as a test market for chains because we had such a transient population with such a heavy military base and everything else. And then it's like we, we kind of grow as an independent restaurant scene and then something happens. The last one was the big one was 2008 where the wheels fell off society again. And what happened? The Powers Corridor blew up, Briargate blew up, super chain driven. And, you know, we took a back seat again. And now it's, we're getting that, that inertia up again. And now we got a, a pandemic to deal with and low labor. And now it's what used to be excellence or nothing is now, well, we have to settle for that because it's either that or nothing now. We can't even hit excellence on a lot of it, whether it's modification of hours or this or that. And we still just keep on growing, growing, growing. And with with the the ultra saturation of chain restaurants, it's definitely not helping our scene. And it just every time it just takes a little bit harder to get to get that growth and get that that bubble up of actually taking young culinarians and growing them to where they want to stick in, in this field. And it's just not just a, a monetary driven force of, well, I make I make great money flipping 9,000 burgers on a three-hour wait or, well, I can actually learn how to, you know, do a brunoise or make a beautiful mirepoix or do, you know, some other, some other classic, classic thing, or even, you know, I've got, I got one of, one of my chefs, she's really, she's like, I need to pick your brain about molecular gastronomy. I'm going, okay, well, get ready. Cause you're going to want to grab a notepad. Cause it's, it's, I'm going to, I'll dump it on you, but you apply it or don't apply it, but you'll at least have the skill set. And this is something you're, that you know that you have a personal skill set in, but that's not actually on your menus either. This is sort of no. extracurricular. It is. It's totally extracurricular. I mean, when I started doing all that stuff, it was just for fun. It was just kind of like, I'm going to float chocolate. And that's not going to fly on your menus right now, is it? No, there's no way. The amount of labor that goes into facilitating a lot of that type of shock food, I guess you could call it. It was always meant to be good garnishes, not center of the plate. If you really want to see it succeed, you keep it as a healthy, cool, cognitive garnish or, you know, an, an add-on. I think a lot of places you can pull that off, too, you know, with the molecular stuff, like El Bouli or French Laundry, any of those places in uh. the past, had free stages lining up, living in their cars to learn that kind of stuff. Yeah. It is a completely different market. I mean, we've never had Colorado Springs be a huge pull for culinary stages. Right. No. But I think, you know, that's one of the things that pushes stuff like that is having that free or lower rent labor in a sense. And now there's just not any labor. Yeah, there's none. And uh, yeah, and, and staging is, is a t- total thing of the past. Oh, yeah. You're not getting anybody to work for free for two days. No. Or two months. Back in the day, that's how you came up. You would basically do this little free internship. That's how we got Hogan at, at Sencha, who's now yeah. at French Kitchen. Like, they come in out of, what, PPCC or somewhere locally and say, yeah. hey, I want to learn. And you get this nice little trade. They get their feet wet. But classically, that's how you would go train with a chef and another chef and another chef and become a really good chef. In episode one, we were just talking about that sort of a broken, we don't have that lineage thing going on. They work for, for James for two years, and they work for Brent for two years, and they work for me for two years. And they work, you know, it was just one of those things where they just kept on developing and, and broadening their skill set just by learning very relatively the same techniques because it is a lot of it's still foundational, but then our own personal twists on it. It was one of the things I really appreciated listening to Shane talk is that we don't have that and we, and you don't see it. And this is in a way sitting at this table, it's kind of the end of 
that happening in Colorado Springs in a way. I mean, you know, you with Christine Adrian and Kettle and the people that kind of founded and, and formed you young in Colorado Springs, Brent, and the concept restaurants and what came out of concept restaurants. There's a lot of great, a lot of great people. I didn't work in those places, but I did work for Kettle and I did work for a guy named Alan Ackman and then some of the old French guys in the very beginning, Jean Torville. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if any of you guys ever worked with Francis or any Shot. of those guys around town. They had a lot of stuff to pass along to you then. Jay's talking about a beautiful mirepoix. It's not the prettiest thing in the world, but man, when you do it right and, and you know what that is, but we don't, we don't have that. Or on that same level, a lot of Brent's food is influenced by his travels and he's traveled pretty significantly in the East. That is a big part of it. Shane touched on that too. Like we've got these places that are popping up that have the ethnic drive behind them. And the person running, it's never been to Thailand, never stepped foot in Tokyo, never been to Mexico city and they're making tacos. I'm like, well, so what's going on? The internet has changed that a lot. I mean, when we were all kids, I don't know, I still have hundreds, maybe thousands of cookbooks. You had to read a book and you had to read four or five of them and you had to know how to reference them and you had to do it. And cross reference. And today, I mean, you throw up, you know, curry and you can pick out 77,000 recipes for curry on your phone in less than the the blink of an eye. Yeah. But how many of our hack curries? All of them. They're all, that's the problem. And that's, that's that's the, that's the game. And nobody's been there. You know, and with, with Mama Linda showing you how to make curry, right? And and nobody's been there um, with the old French guy who hit you with a spoon when you didn't stir the hollandaise in a figure eight because it whips it and, and, and makes it fatter. Yeah, I was smacked straight in the forehead for talking while learning a Blanc. Right. With a pair of tongs. Yeah. <laughs> we can't do that anymore, we by the way. We could go into some <laughs> old stories here, but that would be incriminating. Right. So – <laughs> All of that stuff, but it, a, a lot of it is gone, and a lot of it, uh, people are allowed to 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 elevate and get to a place that they shouldn't be when they are. I certainly did. Also worked so hard to make sure nobody knew I wasn't where I belonged when I was twenty three and running a restaurant that I had no business running. And I don't see that drive either in a lot of these places. I was at a place that has um, a pretty good reputation in town here. Young guys running it, super nice. We had a nice meal. But at 7 o'clock, those guys walked out and left it with their crew. And their crew is, I tell you, the experience changed at that point. That crew's not ready for them to not be there. That, to me, is frustrating and disappointing. And um, now that crew's also not getting from the culture the, they need, the culture they uh-huh. need and, and to learn. Perseverance you know? and just the dedication right. of you don't leave until it's done right. Right. If it's 20 years later since the formation of this club Mm -hmm. to now, do you feel like it's been largely mission accomplished or we actually look around and don't know if we've made any impact? I think there's been actually a lot of impact. How many chefs and culinarians have you guys grown? I know I've got a solid like dozen under my belt, a great mentorship throughout it. And then we still have, I think, a, a community aspect. If you think of every time there's a fundraiser, who gets leaned on? The oh, food, yeah. all the restaurants. Hey, we got this event coming up. We need food. We need booze. Can you help? Of course, we were always there to help. We, and we, we, we still remain there always to help unless we physically cannot do it. And right now we've ran into a thing where, I mean, even, even my caterings, I'm cutting out caterings because I just don't have the bodies to do it. Mm-hmm. I think we are a little farther along in a lot of ways. Not necessarily because of Club 9, but... A lot of people have moved into the springs that have a little bit uh, more far-ranging culinary um, chops, in a sense. When I had Sencha, and 
it was hard to get people to embrace what we were doing because we were doing stuff that was not commonplace for this town. I mean, you heard Shane talk about the bison tongue incident at Nosh and being told, I won't eat this food. I'm not on Survivor, but do you recall any stories like that at Sencha where people really gave you pushback in a just ridiculous way? No, I probably blocked that out with marijuana and booze. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we would get, you know, pushback. It's funny, I, you know, remember one time you had a table of ladies that were just atrocious to you. I don't know if you remember Which, this. Apparently I've blocked that with right? marijuana and booze. <laughs> the POS system had gone down and I threw them out of the restaurant and everyone in the re- everyone in Sencha clapped. I don't oh, know if you shit. don't remember that. I don't you remember like, that at all. You were all. like, chef, these... Ladies are making me nuts. Computers down. I mean, we had like the cheapest computer ever. The birth yeah. of the Karen. <laughs> oh, they were full-fledged Karen. Karens. Karen Ground Zero. Yep. Um, what about you, James? Any, any take on then and now mission accomplished? I think through that early part of the 2000s and into 2008, a lot of these restaurants that I call it that original renaissance in Colorado Springs of getting away from, from that eighties and nineties drive of chain restaurants and all of the stuff. And I mean, I'm pretty sure London there was Royal. a book written about us, right? Yeah, it was fast yeah. food nation and it pissed a lot of us off and we kind of, and that was another thing, you know, we wanted to get together and be a part like of Like you were pissed that, that Eric Schlosser used our market as his like demographic study, like driving down right. the Pueblo and seeing all the signs. And not so much at him, but at just at the fact that that's where we lived and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it kind of brings to your head like, okay, well that's why we struggle with anything because really what's going on here is this is the 1495 sirloin and baked potato town. And you know, how are we going to beat that? And we had a great little time there till about 2008. I left town at that point. Sencha went away. Sencha is now an Arby's. Let's just be clear. Yeah, right. Sencha is now an Arby's. <laughs> well, it was an Arby's. Then it was a Sencha. Then it was Jack an Arby's. Again. It was a Jack, Jack in the Box. It was Jack in the Box. And then yeah. it was Sencha. Right. But like, if you want to yeah. look at Colorado Springs food scene sometimes and look for a symbol, you're like, well, Sencha, one of the greatest restaurants of its time, is now an Arby's. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough thing. Primitivo went away. Yeah. Uh, La Petite Maison went away. Walters, as it was, kind of went away. Which leaves us with the city on the hill, as we said in last episode. We have the Broadmoor. Right. Fantastic, but kind of traditional stodgy. Um, The warehouse kept going, but it had some issues for a little while there. The Margarita was still up north, but it doesn't really – the Margarita fits everything that you want in a downtown restaurant. It just happens to exist somehow in a part of town that hates that kind of restaurant. Which is really amazing, actually. And to their credit, they have the farmer's market there on, mm-hmm. on the weekends. Like, they really engage local food. Um, Eric, Kathy, those guys are just phenomenal chefs, do a really good job. And, yeah, um, they're amazing. Yeah, but you're right. Like, they're out of their place in a way. Right. It's kind of the last of the enclave of the west side north. A quick topic shift. In the last episode, you heard Shane and Jared were saying that it's, isn't it interesting that our our scene seems to have popped with cocktail, coffee, beer, distilling culture before food? Drink came before food, and we were saying that might that's usually out of order. It's usually a food scene begets a drink scene. Do you guys have any commentary on that from your perspective? I think we were way before the cocktail culture. Well, yeah, but they, I think they're talking more in the current state. In like, the current. As cocktails kind of made a place for themselves in the rebirth of the pre-prohibition cocktail styles and really getting after the the craft part of distilling and uh, making drinks. I kind of agree with them on that in a way, but the food was here. It just went away. And then it came back maybe stronger. I think a lot of it is that um, it is so much less expensive um, to produce 
booze to produce uh, coffee than it is to open a restaurant. And so there are a lot of very uh, wise conservative investors in this area who are not going to just throw $300,000 or $800,000 at me because I want to have this new grand place in the hotel downtown. But they'll shoot you, you know, 50 grand by a still. It's not a big deal. And they can see, you know, that XYZ is going to produce 50 grand in Mm -hmm. two years. Um, XYZ is not going to produce $800,000 in a decade to pay back on the restaurant. And those food places existed in other places for a long time before the culture of distilleries and and drinks and beer. I think one thing that's changes the like cocktail and coffee scene is that most of the food that is creative here in the Springs, or at least that has deep roots is pre Instagram culture. And at least in my opinion, the cocktail thing blew up through Instagram. And I think Instagram and Facebook and just social media in general is a completely a tool that in 2000 we didn't have. I remember it was like, hey, guys, we were in a meeting at the Ritz. And we're going like, you know, the days of opening your front door and getting slammed are gone. We're going to have to change our marketing strategy. We're going to have to start actually fighting at it because it was like it used to be your new restaurant. The community was there to support you. It took you to ruin that reputation. And now you, you could open and no one would know you're there. You're mm-hmm. not going to get any traffic yet. As we said in episode one, you'll get a 14-hour line around the block for in and out Yep. Yeah, well, the, everybody knows they're coming. And they've been building it and they've had signs around it forever. And everybody wants to try it. If you haven't had it, you want to get it. And if you're from wherever, Texas, Whataburger, you know, California, in and out and you've relocated to Colorado Springs, you're like, sweet, it's finally going to be here. I haven't had one of those in three and a half years. They are marketing specifically to that group mm-hmm. of people that has been here and there's thousands of them um, that are that are wanting that piece of home and that's why it works so well here we'll continue the conversation in a minute but first i'd like to thank these underwriters for making this podcast possible downtown colorado springs home of the largest concentration of independent restaurants in southern colorado is proud to sponsor state of plate and support the passionate individuals who make the food and beverage industry a cultural highlight in our lives. And the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. Good beer requires good water, and lots of it. That's why the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance brings together water resource experts and brewing industry professionals to spark conversations about protecting our watershed. Visit fountain-crk.org to find a liquid lecture at your favorite local brewery. Now, back to the conversation. Jay, in the last episode, I, I told the story of the Roswell, which gets back to what you said earlier oh, about right, your right. Uh, the short-lived venture with bringing in uh, yeah, uh, so Nordic food. So. Scandinavian cuisine. It's beautiful. It's very healthy. It was very ultra uber local driven. I mean, right down to like snipping blue spruce tips off my neighbor's tree to cure gravlock salmon. But it just wasn't. Uh, yeah. Why didn't it work? Um, I think, A, I, got, I, was a little, I was a little cocky. No, no way. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> You're shouldering the blame for this alone out of being cocky? I mean, well, I mean, because no, no, it, no. It, is, it is so far outside the box, but I could see the progression of the city happening. I'm going like, you know, now's the time to strike. We need to get a good anchor up there of an independent restaurant that is thought forward on, on cuisine and actually bring another layer of texture of cool to the north side. 
and that was really the idea now where, where I failed is that, you know, that should have been half the size. I should have spent the money on putting a hood in so I could actually do some type of dinner options. But I thought like this whole like almost like a Tapatria meets Scandinavia up there next to a brewery and Schmuppratz with, you know, all the beautiful locally made product. They're meant to be together. Like it, that's like the jam on beer, beer and Schmuppratz are they're two peas in a pod. I thought it should have worked again. Like what was going into the Lincoln Center around you? Great, great bread, great mm-hmm. beer, great coffee. Why didn't this work? And I was trying to blame the eater partly. Like we didn't support it, but is that too much blame to put on them? You're, you're shouldering it. You're saying it was a bit of your model. I think a bit of the model, like I said, if, if, if I would have had half that space, which would also kind of ruined, ruined a lot of the ambiance of it, because it did look like, I mean, it looked like you're straight up in Denmark. We needed to have, you know, 150 regulars instead of 50 regulars that are coming in twice a week. Okay. And a lot of people that are from Scandinavia and from those countries, when they see the price of what a schmorbrod costs to make in current times with local artists and bread makers and flying in Lurpok butter and all that, if I want to not turn a profit and lose my butt that way, then it's going to be in the price point that they were looking at. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to get people to equate the value of an open-faced sandwich. Even though they're highly popular in Copenhagen and in places in Europe, this is what everyone eats for lunch. We can't pull that off here because of the cost of ingredients. Cost of ingredients yeah. and then cost of ingredients, appreciation cost of, of labor, cost, cost of, of labor, rent, cost, cost of everything. Of Middle facilities. I mean, all of those things make it so much harder here. And I look at some people, I don't understand sometimes when I look at restaurants, I'm like, how do you do it? Give me an example. How do you do a $3 taco? How many $3 tacos do you have to sell to pay an eight, ten, twelve thousand $12,000 rent? Even Schmorbrot, I didn't, I was like, how are you going to do this? $15 sandwiches. There's a lot that goes into that. And you got to sell a lot of them. You have to have the right margins where it's like, I, I could still keep it $15, but what I needed was I needed to cut my rent in half. Right. But with what you had and what you were doing, there was no way to do that. And that's, you know, I, it was one of the things I thought about when I sat down in there is this is not going to attract the diners like, uh, you know, the new in and out or even a green line or whatever. There's going to be a lot of expenses and it's labor intense food. It is, yeah. You know, slicing all of the meat, curing the, you know, curing the fish, doing the beets. Hand slicing slicing the bread. bread. Right. Even just buttering whatever, Uh 300 pieces of bread every day so that you can make the sandwich on top of it. That's a lot of work. Well, this kind of leads into like what Luxie and I were talking about the other day where it's just like, Jay, back in the 70s and 80s, man, you know, I could give the house wings and still have have a, you know, a 20% return. Mm -hmm. And now it's like we're fighting for 10 yeah. And now it's like even now, I don't know if your if your insurance costs went up like mine did, but let me tell you, unemployment, workers' comp, all that good stuff. Well, thank thank you, twenty twenty, because that yeah. that was that was a that was a hell yeah, of a pill to swallow. Is, we're, I mean, workers' comp and unemployment insurance is just insane too. Because they're not basing it off of the employees you have; they're basing it off <laughs> off the money spent. Yeah, and that's one, that's one of the big the, things. So you keep the on, money that we spent the last two years to keep everybody sitting at home not working for us. Yeah, it's the damn. Uh, <laughs> We're talking about something that, that's just all behind the scenes. This is what actually is when it comes to like looking at our food scene and making, uh, you know, what whether, we're, up at night. We're, whether we're complaining about, oh, I wish it was this or wish it was that. But like we, the average person has no idea behind the scenes, all the shit you guys are going through just to keep the lights on, keep open, tight margins, labor, everything the pandemic brought. You guys are up against so much stuff. What would you want to cook right now that you can't cook right now in this town? Hmm. We've managed to put some things on the menu over the last 18 months since we've reopened that I can tell you 20 years ago would have sat 
and rotted in the bottom of my refrigerators. Um, and you've had a couple of those, Matt, the, um, the, the ceviche, which is very the scallop ceviche the, right the scallop now, ceviche, happy which menu, is yeah. A, yeah, a super, um, common thing now, but it's being presented very differently. This isn't like, uh, fish salsa that, that we're serving, right. you know, you're doing like crudo style. Right. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Wonderful. And so it's, it's super beautiful with blood oranges and lime and cilantro and jalapeno. And it's like a crudo style scallop. That's just lightly brined. But even the salsa style ceviche 20 years ago, unless you were at the restaurant for that, the three of them in town that were making ceviche, you weren't coming to my place to eat ceviche. And then that tongue, Shane talked about it 15 years ago. He put tongue on the menu at Nosh and he got a, an earful from everybody about, you know, I'm not on Survivor. But man, it's, you know, it's it's delicious. And we sell a ton of it. So people are eating so tongue now. People are eating these things. Um, and some of it is curiosity and some of it is actually people just have had enough experience now. There's a lot more exposure to what were traditionally like low end ethnic foods. Um, I used to be able to, be able to buy tongue for two dollars a pound, and now mm-hmm. it costs me seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's famous chef's faults. Mild hmm. Ritz menus. I remember like I had duck tongue on there. I used to beef cheeks, skate wings, all that. It was never it was never frowned upon for for me. My big like cruxes were like, man, if I took tater tots off the menu. <laughs> Holy right. moly! Or yeah. like it's like it was it was like the writing joke. It's like, well, I hope they never change Splendid to like a green label because I'd be out in the street getting flogged. Yeah. So Brent, you're, it's, it sounds like you would like to bring back the Chipotle chicken, is what I'm hearing. Oh, that fucking dish! I remember <laughs> when I made that dish. Oh, I was so excited. and crepes. I was so excited about it, and then. It's all we sold. It's all we could sell. And it, you would get so mad. It took so long to cook. Eventually, we changed it on the menu to 30-minute chicken. It says it, and people be like, I need to be at the symphony in 15 minutes, and can you, and it's like, no, it says it's 30 right minutes. There. Describe 30 the minutes. dish real quick. What do you do for a Chipotle chicken, uh, for a 30-minute so chicken? For the Chipotle chicken, we would just open up a chicken breast, and we took, um, like, cream cheese and a grano padano and just whipped it till it became, like, one cohesive mass. Um, we'd put a little nutmeg in it, julienne uh, jalapenos, and then we would do, um, like, potato straws inside of it, like blanched potato straws, and they would kind of puff out the ends like a ribbon. And we would roll that thing and pan fry it and bake it in the oven and serve it with a chipotle cream sauce. It was a super simple dish. People went fucking nuts for yeah, it. I don't so under, I mean, it's a good dish, you but would, I don't understand. Yeah, it. you'd give us like three awesome specials for the night to go sell. I would go to the table. I would work my heart out trying to sell the special and every time, like, oh, that sounds great, but we're going to have the Chipotle chicken. Mm. I'd fire two of them, go back to the kitchen, and then you'd be screaming, God damn it, quit selling Chipotle chicken. Give me a special. <laughs> like, yeah. what am I supposed to do, chef? You created the dish. It's your fucking fault. It was, yeah. <laughs> right. we, we, we still have people come into the, to the Carter Payne and say, hey, do you remember that? And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. I do remember that. Like, 38,000 You think you, you want to bring that back? I'm like, uh-uh. No. <laughs> Never again. I'll give you one thing from the Sincha era, and it's the smoked tea vinaigrette dressing. Yeah. And the chocolate strata. And the chocolate strata. The, the smoked tea vinaigrettes. That's right. Lapsang yeah. Shushong. Yeah. Epic. Yes. I think that was part of the cheese night. We talked about tea for probably about three hours, too. Yeah. 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 So, Jay, aside from Nordic, unless the answer would still be Nordic, what would you want to cook right now that you can't? I would say, I would say the one concept that I still – I still have all these, like, little LLCs and trademarks floating out there because I, the, I had this idea by now. I thought I was going to have, like, eight or nine restaurants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, but uh, Gustacion, like, I still want to bring I, – I would love to bring something that can operate at, like, a one Michelin star into town. That would be amazing. That would be my, my pinnacle, like, okay – Hats on the wall. I'm going to go 
just focus on this and retire out. And what, what, what would be on a menu like that in the springs? I'm trying to picture how do we get a star here? How do we get a star? Well, we're not going to, first off. <laughs> the menus are, are uh, really, it's not that much different from a lot of the food that we're preparing now. Preparing, it's the service. It's the service okay. and also the, the presentation of those things, the time that goes behind. You know, we're taking um, one guy 30 minutes to cut the Brunois garnish for our ceviche Correctly. on a daily basis, right? Correctly. Doing this at a Michelin level, that goes to an hour because there can't be the one little whisker in there. There's that no chopping out. It's right. It is, and they are cubes, and that's how it works, mm-hmm. and there's no other way about it. And you slow down. It's <laughs> actually a cube of a, a off of a round vegetable. So you're saying you could hit flavors, but if you don't hit presentation, it, that's, it's out the window. It's the full meal deal. And then it's also like... When when I look when I look at Colorado, I see I see thirteen seasons because I mean there's like there's that little taint season where ramps are available and it's about three weeks. Garlic scapes, same thing. There is enough vegetables grown, enough product to harvest, and enough local food around here to to actually bring a touch of Europe to Colorado Springs. Absolutely. The, ex- the execution of that is basically goes to as one of my mentors to say, how do you make a, a small fortune restaurant start with a large fortune? It probably would do that. And it probably would be one of those things where I'd have to keep all the other restaurants going just to break even on this one. Mm-hmm. But I would wholeheartedly do that if we could actually bring that level to this. And now we're talking about how would you staff it? Right. Well, well and gone. beyond that staff, though, I mean, talking about Alinea, uh, you know, there's the coat check. Yep. To make sure that when you get there, the, the coat check is already out right. and in hand. And that's the stuff that has to happen. And we have... Nothing like that, even at the castle on the hill. Why can't we have it here? Why why are we destined to this place we seem to be? The money's not here. The the, the right kind of money is the right here. There's actually here. there's actually a lot of money here in this town that there's there's don't know tons about. of money, but there's yeah. but it's, some some but not, money likes McDonald's. Uh, it's some not, money likes Chick-fil-A. <laughs> local <laughs> Local farms. Are we talking about the money on the consumer side or the developer investor side? The investor developer side. The investor developer side has it, but what we don't have is kind of the fun flamboyant money like you have in Dallas and Chicago and Los Angeles and and San Francisco where I just want to be behind something. And that money, I mean, Alinea, uh, the French Laundry, Mm -hmm. um, Dean Faring's place in Dallas, those places – don't exist here because we don't we don't have the the consumer money, but we also don't have the money that wants that here. Mm-hmm. You know that, and that is and that's the investor side. Um, I had one of the greatest experiences of my life at Fairings at the Four Seasons in Dallas. It was amazing, and the whole thing from the time that we got out of the car until we went back to the car. It's this experience, and it is completely. Uh, put together for you and for you alone. There are 300 people in that restaurant, and I had no idea on some level that there were 300 people in that restaurant. One thing I think with like, especially with like Michelin stuff, is there seems to be a little bit of a change. Uh, You're starting to get some one-star Michelin restaurants that are not super service-oriented. The food trucks. Food trucks. That's one thing that I just – it just infuriates me. I'm going like, you're talking about, so you you look at some of the greats, like, you know, the Boku and the Ferdinand Pont and, you know, Frey Day and all those guys where it's like, they spent every penny they had to ensure they had the right silverware, the right this, the right everything. And now we're kind of like, you know. It's really good food, but it's in paper and that's fine. Yeah. No, it's not. No, and it's just it's just, it's just goofy, and the, the lessons in ex- excellence, like even even Trotter's books, lessons in excellence and lessons in service. You read through that, that should almost be like mandatory. It's, it should be it should be in schools. 
Mm-hmm. We may not have home ec anymore, but here's lessons in service and lessons in excellence. I quote that stuff all the time with the staff where it's like, sometimes you got to fire your clientele. If they're going to be a bunch of, if they're going to be four Karens, get them out. Do you feel like the food truck culture is undermining our, our moving forward then? Like it's sort of undercut brick and mortar or no, bringing I, it down to paper plate level? I think the food truck culture is fine. I just say that I don't think it's wise for Michelin to go in there and start going, hey, you know, this is a really good ramen bowl. One Michelin star. It's like, okay, well. I guess I'll go get some sporks out, and we'll see if we can rally one in a brick and mortar. <laughs> I think, you know, one thing with Colorado yeah. Springs in particular is that, and this is probably a Colorado thing, too. I think that we have always been underrepresented in, like, four-star, three-star ent- entities. And I think some of that is it's still a little bit of, like, we're the wild fucking West. It's very casual here. Mm-hmm. Um even at the Castle on the Hill, it's pretty casual compared to the Waldorf Astoria. I mean, I've worked in kitchens where you better be in whites and you better look nice. And Here's your shaver. And, Go shave. And now, mm-hmm. and I'm part of this kind of cultural change in the back of the house, I guess. I mean, I'm in shorts every night. Mm-hmm. You know? And that that doesn't help that perception. We're talking right now up at this higher end fine dining level. It's not always fair when we get back to like the international places and places you can just get a good bun or um, Korean bulgogi or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Do you guys have a sense of the rest of the food scene in the Springs? Are you satisfied at that middle level? Can we pat ourselves on the back for, for being good enough? No, 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 we're not good enough. I say this a lot and it's going to make a lot of people mad, but the Colorado Springs food scene has a very good, it's good enough for us culture. It's not good enough. And we need to be better than, than a lot of what's out there right now. And a lot of the stuff that gets a lot of praise and a lot of hands in the air and a lot of, oh, my God, it's the best taco I've ever had or it's the best burger I've ever had or have you had this barbecue? Um, you need to go like before you start talking about barbecue, I want you to go to Austin. I don't want you to go to Kansas City and eat barbecue. Go to St. Louis and have barbecue. Go to the Carolinas and then talk to me about the six barbecue shops here in town and tell me yep. which one is better than good enough. That's the thing. And that goes for so much of the food. It's just good enough. It's just done at a level wherever it's passable. I'm going to throw Greg Howard into this mess here because I will tell you the best fish and chips that existed in this city are gone. Because McCabe's is gone. They were good. They were huge. Mm-hmm. They were juicy. They were fat. They were good. It was so good. And I had fish and chips at a place last night that is pretty highly touted. It's on the other side of town. And I will tell you, it's one of the best fish and chips I've had. I was really impressed because I went in kind of on the, under the assumption that it wasn't going to be good because everything that I hear is so good. Well, this is a compliment. Um, so, Why don't we just name names so on this, this one? Where were you? Abby's. And Abby's okay. did a great Irish job pub. with fish and chips. I will tell you, far exceeded my expectations. Do you guys have an opinion on um, any places that you think are better than better than good, good enough? enough? <laughs> it's hard, right? Like, well, it, it's, because I, you it's, can go to Denver and get a taco or um, a a noodle bowl or uh, you know a Buddha bowl or barbecue or fried chicken, and any of those things are going to be. Very good. Because you don't make it in Denver if you're not at least very good, let alone excellent or beyond. You just you, – th- those places don't fly. Um, and it's way more expensive to be there doing that than it is here even. 
uh, maybe not way more anymore. We're, we're starting to catch up with lease rates and whatnot. But um, middle of the statement, here you go. Going to make tougher, tougher, to, tougher to bring to the bottom line. Yeah, I just think that that that's the difference. You know, we can go somewhere and we can sit down and eat some things, and we'll be perfectly happy with them. But you're not going to say, "Whoa." Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back and I'm going to seek that out again. Almost every time I go out, I'm disappointed. And sadly, these guys sitting here and most of my friends, we're not open when the rest of you know, we're all closed on the same days. So we can't eat at each other's places, which is kind of a bummer. When we talk about those places, there's just not very many that I feel like I can go. There are great places, though, like Monsi's. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I love yeah. Right? places. But it's honest and it's real, and that's the food that she ate and loved and still mm-hmm. eats and still loves and makes for all of us and teaches everybody the passion and the love behind it. It's not perfect food, but it's exactly what it's supposed to be. Yep. It's and awesome. That's, and that's why it's amazing. There's a half a dozen of those places in town. Right, like Danguillo. They're very straight oh, up yeah. Puerto Rican food mm-hmm. down by my house. Um, right. Half my family is Puerto Rican, and it's really good food. You know, it is what it is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of shops like that in town, really. Like um, European Cafe, man, in my old stomping grounds. It used oh, to be La Petite. Right. Yeah. Like, I go there for lunch quite a bit. Really? Adam's Mountain Cafe. That's a, a longtime standard of, yeah. you know, yeah. again, Fantastic. supporting local. I almost always... Have only eaten there for breakfast. The food has always been excellent. Yeah, dinner's the same, lunch is the same, and that, that to me has been one that's just been really consistent, standard. It hasn't changed what worked. You can still get those classic dishes that yeah. everyone goes there for. I think in some ways, like fine dining is really almost a thing of the past, and <laughs> except in like your super urban, dense areas, which are mostly on the coast, you don't have anybody wants to do, all like the traditional. I mean, French service, like. Hey, I can debone a fish at the table. No one knows how to do that. I mean, that's one of those things like when they talked about in the last episode, there's no one teaching these things. Even And it's not just in the back of the house. Right. It's, it's all around. Front. And a lot of foundational things are not being taught mm-hmm. in front of the house as well. And the way that we're talking about it, like these bastions of great food, they're pretty well gone. Um, and the bastions of great, great service. Mm-hmm. They just they don't they, they don't exist much anymore. They're still there. And there's places you can get it. Um, but a lot of those places too are so far out of the range of the average diner to get to go hitting the French laundry. That's not something most of the world is doing on a daily basis or yeah. even, or even California. It's you a know, special occasion. It's a special it's occasion. It truly place. is a special occasion. Right. Alinea, the same thing. And they get away with it in those markets because the markets are so big and there's mm-hmm. enough people on a given day that it's. You know, it's 200 people's birthday every day in Chicago that can afford to eat at Alinea. Yeah, 200 exactly. people's exactly. birthday every day that can afford to eat at Per Se. And Alinea is really good. They they did mm-hmm. a fabulous job, and it was very interactive, which is also like when you're talking about the square foot of the kitchen where it's like they bring you back in the kitchen to serve you one of the courses. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just – it's just yeah, – it's something it's cool. that we could never pull off here because, I mean, I know I, my rules are like, you know, the, the seats pay your rent, not the size of the kitchen. That's why if you look at all my kitchens, it's like, you do what out of here? Yeah. Hmm. You have you have one restaurant that doesn't have a kitchen, Jay. It's just kind of a uh, bar with a a burner behind it and a fan. Yeah. Well, you know it does, yeah. it does good. <laughs> <laughs> so, closing words, guys. Anything we didn't cover that you wanted to touch on? The only other thing that I I wanted to hit on from episode one. It's one of my favorite things, and it's something that I tell cooks a lot when we start getting you know weedy and it's ugly and people are starting to freak out. 
and I will tell the guys, I'm like, everything we're doing right now is shit tomorrow, guys. Just keep that in mind. Super important. And this is my life. And this is my life savings is invested in this. Mm -hmm. But everything that we're doing right now is literally shit tomorrow. That's what we do. And we need to provide the entertainment around it to bring the value to it. But also kind of keep level heads about who we are and what we do and what it is. Um, has driven the culture to become less uh, formal. Mm-hmm. The black pants and the white shirt and the 13-inch tall hat really changed what you're putting on the plate. Actually, it does. In a on way, some level, it, it does. But is it? But is that just a? Is it really just perception? I think it Push slows you. you down to where you just don't mail it in. Right. I think if if you, if you want to look the part of being prim and proper, act the job you want, not the job you have. Mm-hmm. And if you are clean shaven and you are bringing attention to detail and you do work clean and you don't want to have to re-iron your chef coat, you don't want to spill tomato sauce on it, you're going to be methodical about not using your towels improperly, not using... How you do anything is how you do everything. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Would that be some of your advice to the younglings? Yeah. And at this point, a lot of it, they're going to have to do themselves. There's, yeah. there's not enough of us in town. There are enough of us around, um, but also like... Don't chase the money. The money will come. Brent never did anything for money. You did it for pride for yourself and for what it meant to you. I never did anything for money. I did it for pride and to raise my family. The reason I left town was because I needed a place where I wasn't working 90 hours a week all the time while I had young kids. And I found something that allowed me to do that and still be in a kitchen and do what I wanted to do. And I still worked a lot, but it was never about money. There is a part of it now as a, as an owner where money matters, obviously we have to have it and make sure that we can survive COVID as yeah. a restaurant. You're one of the few old guys who's actually on your line every Friday night still too, right? Jay, you're not cooking as much. You're more of a restaurateur now, would you say? Where I thought I was going to be now and where I am, two totally different realms. But it is, it is no, do I work the line? Only when they're going down. Yeah. Brent, are you still cooking a lot? I'm back in the kitchen every day, every night. Mm-hmm. Um, more as a like, oh shit, oh shit, I need hands right here. Yeah, you're more like um, expo role than like lead saute now. You yeah, are. Um, and that transition's only been like in the last eight months, ten months. Um, I've got an excellent sous chef named Marcus. He's one of the type of people I think. Yeah, there's not the same type of hunger for food and knowledge that there was when we were coming up. Like I was just insatiable. Like teach me, show me. Right. You get read, a lot read, of people read, who read, are, watch, 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 read, yeah. watch, show me, show me, show me. Yeah, a lot yeah. of people now I think are um Google. Google, mm-hmm. you know, and with with my sous chef Marcus, he comes in every day and he's like, Yo, chef, let's talk about this. This is what I think. And I say, Okay, cool, let's work on these things. But I'm in the kitchen every day. I taste everything still. Yeah. You know. Sometimes like, whoa, that is that's all jacked up. Yeah. Let's do you that t- again. You mentioned too, like you left for a family reason too. Right. What, what has what has the impact of this of chef's life been on you guys, on your family lives? You've given up a lot to be here still to do what you're doing. Jay, you've got the, the little kiddo now. Are you yeah. are you managing work life balance? Oh totally. So when I was at the Ritz, absolutely not. I always called myself basically like culinary monk. I was married, but I devoted my life to food and wine and coffee and tea and whatever else, mm-hmm. cigars back then. Like, right. How yeah, they were that a thing. Was, it was a part of the dining yeah. experience. Smoker, cigar, the smoker yeah. dinner. We did, we did a, a cigar and port dinner I remember in that. 1996. Pre-smoking ban in restaurants. Pre-smoking yeah. ban. Yeah. yeah. So back then you didn't have it. Now you do. No, I, now I totally Now you're, like, you've, you're mature yeah. enough and old enough to know how to do it. Like the 15-year-old me say, there's no chance in hell we're going to 
cut out lunches and shut down for a day. Now it's like, you know what? We all need a break. We all need this. We still do our camping trips with the staff and just and just basically yeah. pivoted where it's definitely going to be chasing the, the dollar. Absolutely. And make some great revenues on those days. Territory days, we shut down. We go, you know what? It's not It's not our clientele. You guys are already burnt out. Let's go camping. And we just do it as our own, like, as our own, like, oversized family. I think building staff culture is really important. I think especially nowadays, you had a lot of a lot of good cooks um, decide they can make more money, like smoking weed and driving for Grubhub during the pandemic when they had to. You know, I think the work life balance thing is still like pretty hard for me. I mean, my son's grown. My son's you know twenty six, um, but I had Sencha when he was little. He spent a lot of time sitting on the counter in there. I was much more of an absent father than, you know, you kind of in retrospect, it's like, man, I wish I would have some more time with him when he was little. And those are things like, you know, you can't go back and change it, but I'm aware of, hey, I didn't spend as much time with my son. So now I spend a lot of time with my grandkids. My kids are like Brent's pretty well grown. 18 year old is still at home. 24 year has been out of the house since she left for college. But that time that I got with them was invaluable and I couldn't replace it. And I could see that I was not going to have that time doing what I did in a city. There was a lot of influence in that. My dad had just died. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, man, time is so short. My dad was super young when he passed. And um, I was just like, I I've got to do something different. And this is not going to, you know, this isn't going to cut it for me to be a dad. There were a lot of really long days at points, but yeah, work-life balance. And I think better now. And again, you know, Jay said it a few minutes ago, closing a couple of days a week, never thought that would be a thing. Not doing lunch, never thought that would be a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're open 30 hours a week right now. It's hmm. crazy. Pre-pandemic, it was 76 hours a week. Wow. And everything is working just fine. So um, a thank you to Colorado Springs for that too, because like the support post pandemic has been incredible. Yeah, it's been huge. We're we, busy I think it most created, of us, it created density is what it did. I mean, it's right. actually it's 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 less lucrative, but it's more lucrative. Right. Most of us have um, recovered, I think, pretty well in the. I mean, not necessarily mentally. I mean, I was exhausted coming out of that, trying to stay open and dealing with all the things. It was financial, it was physical, it was mental. It was, it was you know, nuts. It was, yeah, that, that year was building, building was, a hotel during that. Right. was insane. And try to get the defibrillator on two restaurants. Right. Holy yeah. moly. Cause I mean, I came back lethargic. I came back going like, do I remember how to turn an oven on? Right. And do I want to turn the oven on? Why am I doing this? And there was a lot of that for the first six, eight months. I mean, we did it. And we got through it as the warehouse, and I know you guys did too as a collective we, but um, I will tell you it was not the best stuff that I was putting in because I had so many other things going on and trying to trying to breathe that life back into people, at, you know, into the staff too. Like, okay, we're going to do this now and we're going to go get it and it's going to be busy and people are going to come after us and they haven't been out of their house for a year, mm-hmm. you know. Well, events in general, I mean, look, there's so many events that got canceled this year, but we have all this, all the clientele wants it. Everybody's hungry to party, but no one has the, has the energy to host it. Do we have, aside from the eventual hopeful fiddles and biddles return mm-hmm. uh, in a future year, anything coming up you guys want to mention before we check out here? What I told my staff at the restaurants on the West Side, it's like, don't just do a wine dinner or a beer dinner, cocktail dinner for the sake of doing a dinner. Make sure it's something really, really special. Is there a winemaker visiting? Is there, is there this or that? So I know we're going to, we're going to hit those pretty heavy this this season, but with a little bit more intention. We're focusing right now on nursing our wine program along. Um, Crusade Wine Bar was a pandemic baby. We figured um, you can't let a good pandemic go to waste. Um, there's Jeff and I were there pretty much every day still. <laughs> yeah. 
We built the wine bar out and we have an incredible wine list. So we're doing some winemaker dinners as well. And we've been doing um, like paired dinners. We've done um, beer versus cocktail, cocktail versus wine. Yeah, Um, that beer versus cocktail I heard about for like three days, four days afterwards in different places. People really enjoyed that. Yeah, so so the next one we're doing, everyone wants – to do uh, like four courses, you'll get a little beer, a little wine, a little cocktail, and then it'll be me versus Marcus. Well, thank you again to all my guests this week. Jay yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, Brent Beavers, uh, James Africano. Uh, this is State of Plate. We'll be back in our next episode and talk to more chefs and culinarians in town. On the next episode... I shouldn't have to work the hours of a doctor and still wonder what I'm going to eat tonight. I shouldn't not be able to make my rent. If that culture is going to die, let it die. The old abusive Gordon Ramsay and, and Marco Pierre White Kitchen is, I mean, it's its archaic. I think Colorado Springs is looking for fun. I think they're looking for more vibey, more trendy. It's kind of like getting with the times. Thanks to State of Plate's underwriters, the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective, Downtown Colorado Springs, and the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. Please tell your friends about this podcast. We'd love your feedback, especially if you have a different perspective on anything we've said. You can comment on my social media pages, as well as the CS Indies. Find links in our show notes or search us by name. State of Plate was written and co-produced by me, Matthew Schnipper, in partnership with the Colorado Springs Indie and Dave Gardner, who also did our editing. Art design by Elena Trapp. Digital support by Sean Cassidy. Cheers to Hugspeak's Lauren Hug, as well as Shane Lyons for consulting on the show. And special thanks to publisher and executive editor of the Colorado Springs Indie, Amy Gillentine, for greenlighting this podcast. Mm-hmm.